0: We are UCL, and these are our remarkable stories. Hi, I'm Mitesh Vagadia. I work in the UCL Student Support and Wellbeing Team. In each episode, I'll be in conversation with the UCL guests as they share with us their remarkable stories, experiences, and life lessons. In this episode, we meet UCL alumni Lincoln Lee and Kissam Chan, founders of the social enterprise Rice Inc., Lincoln and Kissam are going to share with us their amazing story of how they came together in UCL Halls in their first year, created Rice Inc. that went on to win the whole Prize in 2018. And tell us where Rice Inc. is today. So, for those of you who don't know what Rice Inc. is, tell us.
1: So, um, basically, Rice, Rice Inc. is a social enterprise, mm-hmm. um, and our mission is basically to and world hunger and how we do this is we work in the primarily in the rice industry and so what we do is we basically source quality rice from Southeast Asia we bring it to the UK and we sell it and then we plow back our profits to help smallholder rice farmers uh, in Southeast Asia buy uh, and gain access to more sustainable agri-tech um, and the reason we do this is because up to 30% of rice is wasted even before it gets to the plate um, and the re- main reason is because these smallholder farmers who grow up to 80% of the rice we eat they simply can't afford existing technologies that are actually more sustainable and so they use traditional and uh, sometimes very wasteful practices. Um, and so with our programs in the farms, we hope to help them reduce their losses and help them increase the income and quality of their rice as well as uh, make it better for the environment. Okay. Yeah. In terms of actually how, what that means on the front line for these
0: rice farmers, how does that work in terms of the actual practical product?
2: Yeah. So in terms of on the farmer side, what we essentially do is come up with um, innovative business models um, to use existing technologies that are already out there um, and come up with business models to essentially enable this sort of access to these farmers. So, for example, what I mean by that um, as a case study, we have taken basically a um, rice dryer. Right after you harvest rice, you got to dry the rice. Right now, farmers, instead of using commercially available rice dryers, they use a practice called sun drying, where they just lay out all of their rice that they've just harvested underneath the sun. This process takes around two weeks um, to completely dry to a good level of um, moisture content, and uh, which is 14% if anyone's curious, but basically. Um, After this, it's ready to be milled, which is the next step in the supply chain. Mm. So, in this process of two weeks sun drying, anything can happen to the rice. If it rains, then there will have to be adjustments being made. So if it rains, um, the moisture contents, uh, the rice can begin to sprout, which makes it non-edible anymore for human consumption. And it, there are, like, really ridiculous stories um, where cows come in and eat the rice whilst it's being sun-dried, okay. right? That's an actual story from, uh, that one of our farmers have said. And they're having to use this really rural technique only because they can't actually afford modern agri-tech, okay. like the dryer, which costs an average uh, farmer around 30 years of savings to afford. So what we've done is we've actually taken these technologies worked with lo- local manufacturers on the ground in Southeast Asia to install them and, and uh, get them at a cost-effective uh, sort of price for them. So we installed the dryer, we rent it out to farmers. So instead of having to pay 30 years, it's just a couple bucks for them.
0: Wow. Yeah,
1: yeah. You can think of it like a laundromat for yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, drying, right? Okay. Uh, that, that's how we normally describe it in rural villages. And
0: yeah. is this at the moment just
2: for Southeast Asia? Is that the starting yeah, yeah, so we mainly work in Southeast Asia for now. Okay. Yeah, that's that's where most of the, a big chunk, I wouldn't say most, um, but a big chunk of the rice production happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, places like Thailand, Vietnam, Myanmar, they're all historically the rice bowls of the world. Now mm-hmm. India and China are big producers as well. But um, there's a lot of wastage happening in, in those particular areas. Uh, other places that grow rice, for example... Australia, they're having no problems, right? Mm. But that's, be- or less problems, I would say. Uh, and that's just because they have access um, to sort of economic structures that enable that access to modern agritech. Mm. Um, it's just that the farmers in, in the places we work, they just can't access it.
0: Wow. Take, you back, take me back to um, how you both
1: met. Um, so basically, I'm originally from Malaysia. Okay. Um, and then I came, I studied a bit in Singapore and then I came here for my university degree um, and I met Keesum because uh, basically we were staying together <laughs> in the same dorm, okay. room um, Is in halls? Yeah, in halls, so I was in Ramsey Hall uh-huh. uh, and and Keesum was staying at Ian Baker which is basically w- Ramsey, In Ramsey Hall? Yeah, yeah. Ra- inside Ramsey Hall, Ramsey in Surround building, Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ian Baker um, and we both were both studying um, Biomedical Sciences, so we had like this uh, sort of like everyone who was studying biomedical sciences in Ramsey Hall and Ian Baker knew each other There was like this sort of informal group kind okay. of thing. Yeah, um,
2: and yeah, that's where I first met Keesum or at least heard of him <laughs> So we came up with this idea in response to a competition um, That was uh, that started in UCL um, which is called the HALT prize and um, and for those of you who don't know what the Hulk Prize is, it's um, basically the largest student uh, social entrepreneurship uh, enterprise competition in the world. Um, and basically my friend um, was starting that competition in, or like the campus round in UCL for the very first time. Um, shout out to Masha um, and uh, Masha was basically trying to get more people to join the competition of course and um, when and so because I was running a, another society called the life sciences Society mm-hmm. um, at the time uh, she reached out to me to help promo uh, the competition and the and initially I was kind of resisting Uh, resistant to the idea just because we had such a backlog of other societies events that we had to promo Mm. but um, after like two or three times where she constantly started messaging me um, because uh, the competition was approaching we actually um, I actually was like screw it I'll take a look and then just like uh, post it out there and then after taking a look at it so the context of the competition right it's um super flashy uh win a million dollars uh meet bill clinton uh stay at uh the harry uh the castle in which harry potter was filmed in that was like the advertising that was a prize that was a prize essentially so build basically the challenge was to build a social enterprise that could impact the lives of 10 million people by 2025 um and then so uh, at the time, I just needed something for my CV to try and apply for <laughs> consulting, right? Yeah. To move out of biosciences because I realized that was not for me. Okay. Um, and this was the second year, and so um, after sort of looking at it, I realized so it actually looked pretty interesting. So yeah. I posted it on my society uh, media channels and everything, and I was like, I gotta get it. So it, the requirements were to form a team of three to four. Okay. Right. So and the first person I thought of to call that would even like consider doing something like this was Lincoln who also conveniently wanted to move <laughs> out of biosciences a tiny bit uh, and was interested in entrepreneurship and and business and so the first person to came to come to mind for me to ch- do something as crazy like this was Lincoln
0: Both of you wanted to move out of biosciences? That's interesting right? Mm. Why is
1: that? I think we sort of realized um, that we, we at that point, we weren't. Um, we wanted to move out of biosciences in the academic sense. Mm. Yeah. So we didn't picture ourselves, um, I guess, entering academia or entering uh, medicine or some sort of research-based um, job scope. We were definitely exploring the alternatives inside the industry. So, like perhaps working um, on the business side of pharmaceutical companies. Um, but that sort of opens it up quite broadly because then you can also just do any sort of uh, co- corporate service um, companies. And so I remember that, like, actually the first time we heard of Halt Price, um, we were actually in... We So after I met kee over the um, first year, hmm. um, we still stayed in touch during the summer. Um, and basically in the second year, we thought, like, okay, let's have, like, these regular, like, sessions where we sort of, like, apply for same companies and sort of like try to proofread each other's applications Um, and so it was during one of these sessions where he first like clicked into the hot press link i remember because suddenly his lap uh, his computer at the time bill clinton's face suddenly just popped up and he was like yo check this out (laughs) like um (laughs) you can win a million dollars and then um and then that's when we first like oh hey this looks kind of cool um and then later on uh, i remember vividly like a week later the hot price masha she posted like a team mixer session so it's for people who didn't have a complete team to mingle and try to form a team and i was sleeping um, <laughs> having a nap on a thursday afternoon and basically i got a phone call it was Kisa. and then he was like you are you going to the, the event let's go and then i looked outside it was like raining <laughs> and it was like um late in like dark in London winter and I was like no I don't feel like going I want to continue my nap but he was like no just 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 come on just get out of <laughs> like let's go um and I was like okay um and and we went and and that was literally arguably like the first time we properly um participated or considered participating in a competition um and yeah and so that goes to show how like anything like something unexpected can happen so in terms of let me get this in context how many people
0: apply
2: for this project Two hundred thousand, I think, is a uh, is a number that Help Prize uses.
0: And there's one winner. Mm. Yeah. And that was you guys.
2: Luckily, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, all throughout the stages, like we were really lucky um, to get to meet like um, really good mentors and and people that have helped us along the way. Um, yeah, but um, is, is
1: this going alongside your second and third year then? So it was going alongside our second year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, it, I think they match it to the academic cycles. Yeah. So it starts in the end of term one and it ends at the end of summer. And so you, we basically, um, the finals is right before term reopens for our third year.
0: Okay.
1: So you got to fly to New York
2: and then they put you up in New York in a hotel. No, so, like, we had to pay for everything. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. 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 So, okay. we got a bit of funding that we're grateful for from um, from UCL, a couple of departments from yeah, UCL. Yeah, actually, yeah. Even um, our Biosciences Home Department, so when they heard that, that we got through to the United Nations round. Yeah. Um, it's pretty
1: funny. I think it's like each department paid for one aspect. So, like, UCL Innovation Enterprise yeah. gave us something, and it was more to do with uh, getting there. So, like, flights and yeah. accommodation. Mm. Thing. And I think management you because we would we both actually took a module in our second year in optional module entrepreneurship and so our professor was like wow you guys <laughs> made it you guys are like practicing what um i taught you um and then so they supported us as well um in our own biosciences department as well wow. so it was like uh, several different departments you use coming together all uh, right uh to support us mm.
0: wow
1: and you got to new york what was that pitch like
2: So, interestingly enough, that United Nations pitch was um, actually one of our worst pitches. Yeah. Um, And I'm not saying that just to say that, oh, even though we performed like the worst, we still won sort of thing. But in terms of context, we were actually um, editing the slides till the very last second. Like, I remember an hour before the actual event um, where... We were still editing this, I was so literally on the, on like, also on the floor again, sitting cross-legged on my laptop, on PowerPoint, just shifting things around, um, making sure all the numbers are true and accurate. And, um, whereas the other teams, they had to submit their pitches, like, I think three days before they had their, uh, rehearsals. Well, everyone had their rehearsals three days ago, um, where that was supposed to be the final pitch. And the other, the last three days was just practice, practice, practice. Um, But then, but then, yeah, like um, we we just wanted to be as prepared as we could, um, do the most that we could possibly do right until the last minute. Um, And I even remember pitching, um, practicing our pitch in the final hour right after we submitted the PowerPoint um, to to the organizers. Um to we were pitching to everyone that we could s- possibly pitch to like even uh the we were pitching to the security guard at the United Nations who was just patrolling around the area at one time okay. yeah. right, yeah. but yeah. interestingly enough um that security guard actually helped us win the competition because well, yeah. yeah Lincoln, do you want to tell us story um,
1: so so you know it was super funny like uh, as Keson was practicing um basically a security guard came up he, he was like staring at us because it's just like some guy like looking at a wall and like re- reciting. Um, and then we were like, hey, you want to like, you want to be an audience? Um, and then he, he was like, sure. Um, and after we pitched, he basically asked us uh, a question um, that was very specific to the dryers that we were using. And we realized we've never heard that question before. Um, and then he told us that he's a security guard at the United Nations now. But back home... Uh, in Africa From where he's from He was He actually had a degree In agricultural science
2: I think he had like A master's or a yeah. PhD <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: and then we were like Well I guess we could we, we sort of like Guessed an answer And then he suddenly Was like No 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 You should say This 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 Because So and so and so And it was like A bunch of like Solid facts About like the chemistry Of uh, the soil And things like this And I was like Oh damn Like that's a good answer um, So we recorded it down I told like My team like this is the answer. If someone asks us for this, and two hours later, <laughs> on stage at the UN, this question pops up, um, and my my team, our teammate, her, she just kills it, <laughs> answering exactly the same as that security guard, and everyone was shocked because we had mentors working with us for like a year, and they've never saw that question before, so they were like, "How do you guys know this fact?" And then we we're like, literally, if we if we had just ignored a security guard. We would have not known the answer on stage Yeah That's insane Yeah Literally um, What was the question? Um, so it was basically Our dryers are um, Basically they're powered by rice husks mm-hmm. So the shell of the rice um, It's a natural byproduct And um, he asked basically Once you use that uh, rice husk What else could you do with the husk? Because it will essentially still be a waste byproduct Because we're just burning it um, and basically, we guessed that it could be probably used for some sort of, like, agricultural produce or fertilizer. And he was like, exactly. And this is exactly why it can be used as fertilizer. Because it contains X amount of potassium, X amount... And, like, this is proven to be good for the soil. And then, so it was, like, solidly backed up by facts. And we're like, well, we didn't know all these facts. And then, and, but when we said it on stage, it was like, oh, these guys, these guys really have done their research really well. Um, and it's actually really sustainable. Um, and, yeah, and that was... That was amazing to to actually, when that question
2: came up, I was like grinning all the way. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see yeah. it, like there's a video of our pitch online, um and I'm sure you can see see Lincoln's uh, expression when that that came out. <laughs> oh
0: my God, did you get the guys did you get the security guard's name? No, no we no. never saw we Nick.
2: we We tried finding yeah. him after the pitch, but we never found him.
0: He yeah. existed,
2: right? He did, he did 100%. This is not as... <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of the idea itself, where did the idea come from? So the idea of, like, why rice drying, right? Exactly. <laughs> why did a bunch of biomedical scientists decide, hey, let's do some rice drying? Um, that's, that idea actually came from basically when we were brainstorming how to create a social enterprise that impacts the lives of 10 million people by 2025, mm. there was one area that we wanted to focus on, which is agriculture. Uh, and that was one of the few suggested industries that we focus on by the Hull Prize. And within that agriculture space, we were trying to find, uh, basically we were trying to come up with like different ideas um, uh, on how to impact people's lives uh, Positively, we were coming up crazy ideas with, for example, maybe like an indoor um, sort of plant garden where you could grow vegetables and fruits, so that you create could, on the one hand, um, help with uh, cooling costs because plants indoors it helps with uh, regulating heat in buildings and stuff like that, uh, and even stuff outside of agriculture, uh, for example, solar powered lampposts in places don't that don't have solar powered lampposts, but I remember the night where we came across well where Lincoln actually came across this uh, article that said that 80% of rice that's ever produced doesn't actually get to market 80 zero. 80 zero. that was the number we saw in that article wow yeah and but we later found out right so when we um did some more research that number was closer to 30 than 80 80% was just like one specific place in one specific country in a very Mm. small area. But still, when we did some more research, it was 30%. In a $52 billion industry, that's a lot of rice Mm. that's being wasted. And um, when we dug in further as to what was causing this 30% of loss, it was just because um, we came up with articles that said drying. Right after you harvest your rice, you have to dry it. Uh, There were other problems like transportation and bad storage practices, but drying, that attributed to 30% of that 30%. So a significant chunk of loss uh, was caused by that. But when we looked at other places um, that had, uh, I think I mentioned before, that were a bit more developed and had a rice industry, they had sort of, they didn't have this problem with drying. Mm. And it was because of, Again, this lack of access. Technologies are out there. It's just coming up with business models and, and to try and bridge that gap of technology and and access mm. and costs and costs exactly. Wow,
0: it almost seems like you looked at something that was a wastage, that thirty percent. You focused and said, "Well, how can we reduce that?" Yeah, yeah.
2: I think Lincoln, you like to put it well. Instead of trying to find, oh, do you want to say it? Instead oh, sorry. Of, oh, yeah.
1: Try, is, I guess. I, the concept we went for was like instead of trying to find a solution or like create a wholesale solution, um, the solutions are out there. It's just about getting the right solution to the right people mm. in the right way, um, and that's that's essentially what we focused on. Um, and and it turned out actually that uh, during the Hot Price competition. So if anyone listening to this wants to apply to the Hot Price, um, they actually like that because um, you're taking essentially a proven product that's maybe distributed in a less efficient way Mm. and just sort of finding a new way to new users for it, a new way to distribute it. And um, I guess that's a lot better for the world because you're not trying necessarily to create something new. Mm. Um, You're just trying to give people access
2: to what they need that's already proven to help them. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then on the bright side, you don't have to spend so much time, like years and years doing R&D and stuff like that. Um, because chances are the solution is already out there. You just have to find a creative way on getting that. That entrepreneurship that you guys have, where does that
0: come
1: from? For me, for in terms of the core, like I guess, entrepreneurship and where I guess I get my attitude from, um, I was mainly interested in exploring entrepreneurship, which is why I wanted to join the Hulk Prize in the beginning. In the second year, I decided I'm going to explore this industry. Um, was because two things. Um, one is my grandparents, and second uh, is stuff I did uh, before university with my friends. So, the first thing my grandparents, I'll just take an example. I guess I always heard stories from young um, that they were quite entrepreneurial in a sense. So, my um, great grandparents immigrated to Malaysia from China, so they were quite poor. Um, my great grandfather died when my grandfather was very young. Um, and so, apparently, he had to support his family while he was studying at school. But what was unique was that he was, I guess, in his among his siblings, he was considered quite bright among his peers. So, But he had to work uh, every morning and every evening before he got to school. But the only jobs he could do were sort of like illegal jobs. So what he would do is he'd wake up at 6am every morning, go to factories that sell uh, fried dough, which is uh, sort of part of a cuisine back home, and he would take the leftovers from that factory and basically sell it to, um, what was it called, like to coffee shops. Um, and basically, he, they would give him money, uh, half, I think half-half or something. And then what he would do is he would basically then go to school. And I hear stories about how, like, because this technically illegal back then in the 1930s. Yeah. Um, I hear stories of like when the police came, he and his friend or something would like climb up the tree and wait hide their bicycle in the bushes, <laughs> wait for the police patrols to leave, and then come back down and cycle back to school. And everyone in school would think that he's rich because he comes in with a pocket full of change, but it's actually not his money, it's like the money for, for the, the factory guy. Uh, and then he would go back after school, pay off the factory, take all the leftovers, bring it back home to eat or something, um, and he would have no time to do his homework. And so part of his earnings, he would use to pay his cousin, who was in the same class as him, to do his homework for him. <laughs> and then, right at the end, before his exams, he would basically buy an extra book and do the whole book and then go to <laughs> the test. Um, and so, it's, I guess like hearing all these stories since I was young, um, before I came to university, I mentioned that was the second time. I, my, what some of my friends and I decided we should just try something ridiculous like this. We had free time. Um, and we, basically, we were studying for, I think most people study A-levels before they come to university yeah. in IGCSEs. So, uh, the main practice that we do is uh, the pass your papers, and but they're extremely. Uh, so you can get them freely online, yeah. but um, there are some suppliers uh, that basically print it out, bind it, and sell it. But they sell it at insane prices because there are literally I think only one or two bookstores in the whole of Malaysia that sell it. Um, and I guess I always had this idea with if I can just print it f- myself, like why don't I just I just bind it and sell it to you for a much cheaper price. Um, and then my friends were like, "Hey, actually, um, one of my relatives owns a shop <laughs> that prints stuff." And then so we were like, "Okay, let's go around to like our old schools and like ask the teachers if they they, they want their students to get these books." And the teachers were like, "Yeah, sure." Um, and and then we started this sort of like small um, ring of like a distribute book distributions in schools. Um, that was before I came to university. It stopped once I came to university. Um, at least I stopped I think they're still doing it now <laughs> um, and, and, and that sort of exposed me To this world of entrepreneurship Hearing stories of my grandfather And doing this um, And that's when in the second year I decided Oh let us let me see what I can do But I think what I learned also It's like it's very different um, First of all Starting a social enterprise Than mm. a normal business Because that's really mission driven And I guess second of all um, Starting sort of something With a big goal You and where you get um, you you get investment, and you have to professionalize it. It's very very different from all these stories that you hear. That the the core um, entrepreneurship spirit is the same, mm. but uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of lessons that uh, I had to learn as well, and still am learning. Um, even though I was like take, trying to take that spirit, um, there are a lot of things and techniques that people have done over the years to mm. make it to make it, I guess, more professionalized. Um, and on a much larger scale. Yeah. Wow.
2: Hearing that, hearing your story about your grandpa, that actually reminded um, me of um, some when when my dad was growing up. My dad, he he was um, he wasn't from like a good background. He was um, when he, I think so in his younger days. I think when he was 13, 14, Back then, China. Uh, wasn't as where he's from mm. um, wasn't as prosperous as yeah. it is now and so he had to actually drop out of high school to start selling uh, not dosik, sticks but uh, porridge rice porridge oh, wow. on the streets that's like a breakfast thing as yeah. well um, in, in in China I, I so he actually had to drop out of school and then do this um, he eventually saved up enough money from the side hustle to, to support his family with this money and also he saved up enough money to actually start renting out a place uh, and, and move to Hong Kong subsequently um, where apparently the opportunities were, were much greater he used that money to buy basically not buy but rent out a flat and what he did with that was that he subdivided that flat and this was also kind of dodgy <coughs> at the time yeah um, but back they back in those days that were really common, and he actually rented out individual spaces in that flat to other people, and to start this like almost like real estate side hustle yeah. as well. So I feel like this entrepreneurial spirit—it's like quite common. W- would you say it's a bit more common in in, in, in back in Asia? Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: You, you get like various stories of people, um, doing this. I think, um. Hearing Kisan's story, like, uh, basically, one of my grandparents fell sick, and we had, and we had to hire a carer, and. When I was speaking to Kara, I found out she, she was doing this at the side. She had, like, three apartments. I was like, what? You're working as a nurse? for <laughs> a foreign individual. Vision. You have three apartments? And she was like, yeah, yeah. I rent out each apartment to, like, four different people. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah. Um, if you you know anyone who's looking for a room, let me know. <laughs> so she's like, a what? Kara yeah. and a real estate at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, yeah, it's brand new, r- quite common.
2: But it's interesting because back in those days, uh, our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation, they weren't doing this because they were passionate about that. This is for survival, Yeah. Right? Um, but now, uh, I, I would personally say that I'm really lucky to be in a position where where it's not necessarily for survival, but it's more of a, uh, something I'm trying to do as... to follow my passion and trying to help as many people uh, in the world as possible. Um, but the, in terms, I 100% agree with Lincoln in terms of that mindset, those core entrepreneurial principles, it's the exact same. Uh, it's basically, if you put uh, condense it, it's just about trying to hustle. Yeah. Right? Come up with creative ways of doing things that other people haven't done before or haven't thought of. Uh, making a business or an industry more sort of streamlined, more efficient, and helping society as a whole through that.
0: It's Amazing. You mentioned um, a few times about failing and coming up against these challenges. Two things, A, how do you you recover from failing? Because a lot of people struggle and are scared of failing or taking that risk initially. Mm -hmm. So how does someone overcome failure and continue on and and go again? Um, That's my first question. My second question is, what was the biggest challenge you've had so far
2: I think for in terms of failure and how to overcome failure in in my personal experience it's I was really lucky because I had a strong group of mentors that helped almost like put things in a different perspective to see the good in a bad situation. seems like a recurrent theme, but in entrepreneurship, there are ups and downs almost every single day. Um, But despite it being so, I guess, inconsistent, you have to always have sort of built that resilience and the only way to do that. So initially, um, to have like a, a more positive perspective always helps. Um, having a strong group of mentors to guide you and, and, and light sort of like the next couple of steps when, when things aren't so bright for you. Um, that always helps having a strong group of friends and basically a support system mm. um, is always good. Um, and to be honest, the only way to sort of overcome this fear of failure is to fail more. Fail fast, get back up quickly um that's 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 the name of the game in entrepreneurship keep failing because the more you fail the more you learn the more you learn the closer you are to success whatever that means to you in, in your own context Lincoln, have you got anything to add
1: yeah um so so definitely i i agree with what kisim has mentioned um failure for me personally has been quite hard because uh, I think some of the, the failures that I encountered in Rising was a lot to do with, um, I guess, misconceptions on how, how working with people would be like. Um, I carried forward from, I guess, student clubs, uh, societies, things like this. It's very different when you're working for like a society or something and uh, an actual company. Um, especially when someone's invested in a company and is expecting something to happen. Um, there are a lot of things that I didn't know. And sometimes a lot of it can feel like a shock. Um, but I think that what Keezen said is very true, and I sometimes like to think of it in a way that one of the mentors, um, who was also an entrepreneur and trying really hard to start his start a couple of businesses of his own, mentioned it to me one time. He was like, entrepreneurship's a bit like... boxing match Um, and he said every morning you get up and you go into the ring and you have an opponent there and you plan out you you know how exactly you want to hit him or like claim like knock him down but then suddenly you get like sucker punch yeah sucker punch essentially like you 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 jab to the left and suddenly he dodges and you know it hits you Um, and I I like to think of uh, so one of the most famous boxing movies of all time is like Rocky and how he wins is he doesn't blitz in and just like destroy the opponent he's very famous for being able to last all the way till the end Mm. Um, no matter who or what hits him and no matter how he falls he comes back up um, and he just he doesn't give up Um, he tries again and again no matter how badly he loses matches but he comes back again to try again um, and I think that um, in entrepreneurship, especially for uh, in this day and age, that's very important um, because you you might fail. Um, people have there are tons of people who have actually failed their businesses, um, but they decide to start another one and another one, um, and sometimes it even seems illogical <laughs> to start to continue, but you just need that one opening. Um, Essentially, in like a boxing match, you just need your that one opening that you see, and if you can deliver on it, um, deliver it well, then 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 you're done. I'm um, not you're done, but like you you know that that's that you just need to wait for that one opening and seize it when that opportunity comes.
2: I like yeah. that. Um, right. And and there's just to add on to that, and it's a lot about yeah you're gonna experience failures, you're gonna exp- experience successes, but as long as you're net positive, that's all that matters. And you got
0: to have the eye of the tiger. <laughs> exactly.
2: <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mentioned mentors a few times. Mm-hmm. Have you got like actual business, entrepreneurial mentors that you regular in touch with?
1: Yeah. So, um, we basically, when we first started, we had nobody to help us. Mm. And so what was, I guess, unique about us was we were that team that basically would keep contacting everyone. Um, I think uh, at one point, it was a bit... uh, I I would basically keep contact... We would basically contact all the judges um, in any of the rounds. When the hot prize came, we would talk to everyone. Uh, I think there was one time where we... I think Kisa mentioned to me, like... uh, I should stop scheduling too many appointments because, like, it got a bit ridiculous where we won't even have time to absorb what people would say. It would just be, like, meeting after meeting after meeting.
2: <laughs> um, Sometimes, like, it wouldn't... Like, the the people we were meeting could have been from, like, a really random background, like a professor from, like, some uh, sort of obscure, obscure department in UCL that had some vague connection to Rice. Um yeah <laughs>
1: and and yeah and so but basically exposing ourselves to so many people um, I think what was useful was that um, one was that we actually managed to develop some relationships with some of the people who were very useful um, they were very experienced they, they and they also sort of like were our first believers basically they believed that we could do it when essentially in the beginning no one would have thought that we could have won because first timers we're only second years, undergrads. No industry experience in the industry we want to do. Um, no business experience at all. Um,
2: only connection to Rice was that the fact that we were Asian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and
1: literally, literally nothing going for us. Um, it's just sort of like on paper, it's a good idea. Uh, but anyone could do it as well. So why, why, why us? Um, but out of all the people we contacted, there were a few that basically was like, I think they can do it. Um, and they wanted us to succeed. And so we, we basically developed, like, I guess, not to say even mentor-mentee relationships. Sometimes I would actually call them, like, our friends. Uh, friendships with people who, who are basically much more experienced. Mm. What do your parents think of what you've done so far?
2: I mean, like, when, <laughs> when we first won uh, the competition the i called my parents told them the good news we were in new york i was very sleep deprived and then they were like oh my gosh congratulations so when are you thinking of starting business school or like grad school you know (laughs) (laughs) i was like hard to break it to you but i'm not (laughs) trying to do this full time um but yeah they're they're incredibly happy and whenever they can they do support they've supported uh, for my family they've supported me financially mm. quite a lot um, they were I was lucky enough for them to pay for like university I know um, some people don't actually get that privilege um, so I'm very grateful for that and um, even even sometimes when rice is a bit low on cash eh? uh, they're like we don't have much but here's what we can try and help you out with. Um, that was a big thing, and friends, right? Like whether we have like a small project or like a big project, um, if they can, they and and they have uh, time, they would um, sort of help. Like for example, we have I have a couple friends from high school that have helped us out from here and there. Uh, friends from societies, my flatmates. I remember when we were still practicing for a pitch, mm. they would stay up with uh, me and Lincoln, and we just. Pitch in the living room, um, and they'd be like, um, they'd give us feedback, and yeah, um, there's so many people. So many people.
1: Yeah, I think um, one funny thing when uh, Kisum mentioned his parents, because I remember this situation quite clearly, it was early on in the competition when we were, um, I think we were crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. Um, We were on some platform, there was a prize, it had to get people to vote, Um, people could comment as well. Um, and so, obviously, we reached out to our friends and family to vote. But the two people who commented, and they were they basically said, they were re- sent really encouraging comments like, amazing initiative, great job, it was basically Keyson's mom and dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and we were so surprised because we expected people to vote, but we didn't expect people to comment. And suddenly, we got a notification, you have two comments, and so we're like, oh. <laughs> and yeah, it was his mom and dad. And um, I think even, like, definitely our friends and family, they really supportive. Like I think one example that I'll remember forever is like um, when we were piloting, we needed to speak with farmers and basically I asked my family back home, do any of you know any farmers? And then my granddad was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> like from like 30 years ago or something. <laughs> I, I hope he's still alive. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, and he was like, we can go. Um, and it turned out my aunt, 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 aunt and uncles, my parents all went. they brought Kisum, our team um, We realized that we didn't have enough space. Some of my friends volunteered to drive us all the way up there. It was like it was four, like a long drive yeah, five hour journey yeah. into the farmers. It was like a big group of friends and family um following us, <laughs> wondering. <laughs> why is Lincoln <laughs> wanting to visit farmers for his summer when he should be doing an internship <laughs> to get a good job? <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and so they, they always support where they can, um, even, though it, 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 even in these funny situations, um, I think um, those are like the moments you remember. Yeah. That's
0: incredible. It's like you've had these little angels along the journey, the security guard, your grandparents, your parents. You know, putting you in touch with these people, helping you out when you most really needed it.
1: Yeah. At the right
0: place, at the right time. And you are here today
2: because of that journey that you've been on. Yeah. Yeah. Luck has a major part to play um, in our journey. Um, But I think what we've experienced is that luck can come, uh, luckiness is something that happens to everyone. You just have to try and be ready for that luck when it strikes. Uh, For example, if that security guard was patrolling the whole UN, right? But it just so happened that we were pitching and we were ready with our pitch, uh, that we were exposed to that sort of environment. So luck can happen anywhere, anytime. You just have to be ready for it and strike at the right opportunity.
0: where is Rising today and where is Inc going to
2: be in five years time where is Rising today um, in terms of Rising today within the just over six months now that we've been working on this full time right after we've graduated um, in terms of the impact with the farmers we've uh, and the amount of rice that we've saved um, because of the machines that we've built—we're talking, and I'm proud to say this—we've saved over a million meals of rice worth of rice that would have otherwise been wasted. Wow. Um, and hopefully that's just the beginning. Um, not only are we doing work with farmers and helping them, helping them increase their livelihood. Helping decrease wastage in the rice system, being more eco-friendly. But we're also, we've also recently launched a new initiative, where we actually source quality rice from around the world, and supply that rice, um, so that anyone can eat sustainable rice. And how that works is that for every bowl of rice that we, that you eat, that's our from us, we reinvest profits back into building more of these dryers. Um, to s- obviously save more rice mm. um, and that rice is actually um, so for every bowl of rice that you eat you're basically saving um, a bowl of rice that's being lost right in terms of um, when, you, when you eat it when you buy it when the caterers buy it so that rice is actually available in UCL Canteen today. today well not today it started last month so, well, yes, technically, today, today. every day yeah. from Everything. now on. Yeah. Um, so go to the spice counter, <laughs> you'll find our rice. Uh, and for every meal of uh, worth that you eat over there, you're saving a meal um, of rice that's otherwise lost through our reinvestment activities. Go straight back to farmers.
1: In, in five years' time, um, I think we talked about this <laughs> before last time. Um, so we have a deadline um, because of... Uh, <laughs> What oh, was the help price? Yeah. It's 10 million people by 2025. Yeah. So we should have helped 10 million people by then. Um, we really envision that we hope in five years, we, our goal is to basically build a sustainable supply chain in rice. That's ethical. Because right now, the, our goal is, first of all, to basically be able to get rice from the farmers we work with. Because right now, they, they face low prices at sale. The quality isn't high enough to come to places like the UK and the US, where it's a more high-value market for them. Um, But they could essentially produce that same quality. Um, They just need the proper technologies. And so we envision sort of like an integrated kind of supply chain uh, in five years' time where we could basically uh, decommoditize rice, essentially guarantee farmers a fixed price for their rice because our brand would be strong enough People would recognize it enough to be able to know that um, if you buy rice rice, rice inks rice, um, it's basically going to be sustainable for the environment. It's going to be ethical for farmers, and it's going to be fair to them as well. And so we'd be uh, the money is well spent, um, and and with that we would essentially be able to not just reduce the waste and tackle world hunger like what we want to do, but also create a more sustainable uh, ecosystem within the rice industry that is basically fair to both the consumer and the producer um, and would basically make it uh, sustainable in the sense where it would consistently provide high quality and nutritious food um, for for basically the world, for the 4 billion people that eat rice every day. And, and that's where we hope to be in the five years.
0: Yeah.
2: Like right now, the rice industry, like normal rice supply chains are kind of mess up, as you can tell from the 30% that's going to waste, right? Mm. That 30%, a big chunk of it I mentioned is attributed to, to drying. But a big chunk, like another chunk of it, bad storage practices, um, the way that uh, the the middlemen handle the rice is inappropriate as well. All of these other problems are also contributing to that waste. Mm. So right now, our reinvestment activities only fall with the drying bit because that's what we know that's what we're good at but in the future once we've solved that problem hopefully for at least a majority of rice smallholder rice farmers we're m- hoping to move into those bits of the supply chain to one day create that the ultimate ethical and sustainable supply chain for rice that everyone sort of wants to emulate I've got two final questions
0: other mm-hmm. students who are potentially thinking or they're starting their journey at the moment what piece of advice would you give
2: them just do that's all i would say just all you really need is to take those first steps to problem solve to keep failing everything else will come naturally to you if you have any sort of idea like Ideas, great ideas, fantastic ideas, they come every single day to everyone. I haven't heard a single, like, okay, I've heard a couple bad ideas, but then there are good ideas that people are thinking of. But those good ideas don't materialize because people are too afraid to take that first step, to think that, oh, they can't do it, they don't have the resources to do it. The resources come secondary, the mission is first. You'll think of a way to assemble those resources in a creative way to achieve what your mission is. But taking that first step, whether you're in, you were in our position um, three years ago during university or even high school or even maybe you're later down in life, um, I would encourage you to start early. Don't think about the problem so much. If you think about everything that can possibly go wrong, you're never going to be spending enough time to think about the things that can go right. And all it takes is a couple of small wins um, that changes people's lives, right? Um, For example, um, my flatmates uh, that I was living with in second and third year, um, Calvin, one of them, the other one, Stephen, they were... So right now, because of the whole coronavirus situation Mm. in Hong Kong, um, they were... kind. They were like, kind of... Basically, they have a lot of free time right now because schools are shut, universities are shut. Um, They were curious about entrepreneurship. And I was like, just start a social enterprise, right? It doesn't have to be game-changing, like your next unicorn. It could be, but you don't know unless you take that first step to sort of get them to get on that track to know that you can achieve that as long as you... Can basically, because all the resources are out there, it's never been easier to start a business. Um, whether that's in the form of like e-commerce, or like a more traditional business, like starting a restaurant. I know Lincoln, your friend, has started like a nasi lemak store in in Malaysia, right? Which is like a traditional rice dish. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty funny um, because I was just thinking
1: about this when Kism said, but basically my friend was similar. Mm-hmm a situation where he's basically spent his entire life dreaming about opening a restaurant. Uh, he went to culinary school. He was working for a restaurant, and I guess he said that the industry was very—it's very, um, very top-down, where you have to work for years at the bottom, slogging it out for someone before you even get close to being a chef, um, and then saving enough money to buy your own restaurant. Um, and he, I told him, like, you know, like there are. Pop up stalls, just buy a table, put it outside a market, sell your food. Um, and then he spent like I think a month, a solid month, testing his recipes, asking all his sh- seniors, his chefs, his peers to try it, refine it. And then he was he was telling me about how like he's tested it and everything. And I was like, that's great, but dude, just just do it. Go go make a batch of twenty uh, packets. Um, get a table, get a chair someone to drive you to the market and set it up um, and, and so he did and, and actually um, like two days ago he just texted me telling me that like he's sold his hundredth packet um, successfully um, and, and he doesn't have enough kitchen space now because he, <laughs> he wants to make more batches because he sees that there's an opportunity there but he's only cooking it from his home um, and so he was like can I use your house? <laughs> 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 Malaysia help um, but I don't leveraging know other resources <laughs> that you have
2: available exactly
1: <laughs> um, but yeah and, and, and I think I, I would like to add a layer to what um, Kisan said about just doing it I think a lot of students um, especially people in our day and age they don't know what they want to do or at least they're not sure and there's a lot of external pressure on um, people to know what they want to do to have it all figured out and I strongly believe that you should just do it but at the same time I also believe that it's okay it's okay to not be sure Um, to students um, it's okay to not really know what you want to do I always believe that if you don't necessarily know what you want to do you might as well do something you like Um, and that was the mindset I had when I started my entrepreneurship journey I just knew I liked it Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it as well I just decided I'm gonna explore it and trust in the process trust in the journey and i think it's a lot more enjoyable that way as well because then you're doing something you enjoy and you, you're not necessarily stressed out about like oh is this going to be my life um you're just sort of absorbing and learning and i believe that once you reach certain points in that journey then you'll be able to say oh actually i think now i can have put some elements of a plan in place because i've experienced it um and so that would be my advice to someone who's like starting university or midway in university and trying to wonder about what they want to do.
0: My final question. You've told me what advice you would give to someone else who's starting their journey. What advice would you give to your younger self?
2: I think for me a lot of the hardships that have come through or like the hard lessons that I've had to learnt, learn um, through like bad experience uh, throughout the journey and it's always and a lot of sort of resistance to progress especially in the beginning of the rising journey at least on my part in terms of productivity was a lot about fear on what could go wrong and that made me sort of adverse to taking big risks or out of box ideas because especially coming from a more traditional Asian household, you were told to just stay on, this, on the road that's crystal clear, nothing bad is ever going to happen. Just get a graduate job, for example. Just go to a good university, stuff like that. And then so if you don't achieve that or if, you're, if you don't fall under that straight path, then you should be worried. You should be worried about what's going to go wrong. That's sort of the mindset that I've been taught up, taught with, uh, growing up. But then in hindsight, with all the stuff that has happened in terms of, and, and we've, and I personally experienced some like really traumatizing stuff throughout the journey. Sometimes like we'd be stuck in the middle of, 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 uh, Southeast Asia and like the jungles, not having like, uh, access to, uh, communication to like someone, um, I would tell, to, say to myself that everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. Um, if it happens, it happens. Um, but there's always a brighter day tomorrow.
1: Mm, advice I would give to myself. If it's five years ago, maybe don't
2: waste your time applying to other universities <laughs> <laughs> just go to UCL <laughs> um, everything's just, fine just go yet. to UCL study biomedical sciences yeah. <laughs> walk uh, past Ramsey Hall
1: <laughs> I think what I've learned is that you two things one is that it's fine to to be to take risk and building on what I said before like just to explore and go with the flow but there's a smart way to do it as well uh, fail fast yes but I like to add fail smart um, don't don't do thing don't fail the same way twice fail smart in the sense where you don't you don't have to just jump into something head first sometimes you should jump take a leap of faith but um it doesn't hurt to be smart about where you leap um and that's the main advice I give to myself and um the second advice I would give to myself um is sort of like to really understand a situation when something's wrong um because just because you've Uh, that made mistakes and everyone makes mistakes that doesn't give um, that doesn't mean that you should be accepting of the situation that has gone wrong just because you made an error doesn't mean that someone else can do something negative towards you as well as a result of that an eye of an eye does does make the world go blind and if you've sort of damaged someone's eye you should apologize for it but you shouldn't be but you shouldn't have to take your, a damage to yourself um, there was something that I had to learn in this journey um, and still I'm learning um, yeah
0: gentlemen it's been a pleasure talking to you guys and it's been so fascinating listening to your story thank you for coming in and sharing your remarkable story because to me and to a lot of people this is not a remarkable story it was our pleasure
1: yeah. thank you so much for having us with us
0: I hope you enjoyed that and thank you for listening. In our next episode, I'll be talking to UCL alumni Nick Coveney about his experience growing up a member of the LGBTQ community and how this impacted on his education.